I, I we should be live. But as always, uh, I require the validation of external people. People give me a hard time for not knowing who the guest is. So just before we even get started, before we get into just the chat, uh, this is Dr. Jesse Christensen, a research scientist at NASA's Exoplanet Science Institute and the deputy science lead at NASA's Exoplanet Archive. Exoplanet, Exoplanet, Exoplanet. Today, we're going to talk all about exoplanets. Hey, Jesse, how's it going? Hi, good, thanks, Razor. How are you? Good. Uh, so we've only got half an hour today with Jesse. I'm going to stick around for the full hour. So this will be like 30 minutes of just like full on exoplanet talk. And then we will, uh, she's got to go. I'll take over for the rest of the show. And uh, so we can sort of shift into more general conversation. So, so Jesse, for people who don't know what you do, uh, what do you do? So I use NASA spacecraft, um, specifically Kepler and Spitzer and now TESS to look for planets around other stars. Uh, and now I find them. I used to not find them for a long time, but now I actually find them. So that's thousands. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and so we're just about to hit 4,000 known exoplanets, which is exciting. It's it's funny to me as we're reporting on Universe Today, and I'm I'm sort of, I handle the assignments desk for the team and I'm like, nah, that's not a big enough discovery to report on this planet. Oh, that one's a cool planet because it's got, I don't know, it's, you know, it rains molten steel or something. And so I'll pass right. that along to the, to the team. We're actually having the same problem at the journal level, like getting a paper published on just another garden variety, hot Jupiter. The editors are starting to be like, uh, is this really interesting anymore? Because, you know, the same thing happened with galaxies. For a long time, every single galaxy that was discovered was right. an incredible, like, yes. Yeah. And now you can't publish the discovery of a new galaxy, whatever. Yeah, there was actually a paper that, that just came out where they announced 83 supermassive black holes all right. at the same time. Because, like, yeah. that's where we're at now. Is It's only worth it if you like, can just, like, really deliver an entire load of, of new planets and, and drop them off. And, in fact, there was, there was, I think it was, like, a Japanese study or something like that. They had confirmed dozens of exoplanets that had been found by i think kepler had confirmed and so same thing they just gather them all together They're like fine here several dozen confirmed right. planets will you accept this in the journal right so it becomes this exercise either gathering as many kind of garden variety ones together as possible or finding out what the superlative you know this is the warmest sub-neptune that orbits <laughs> a cool star yep. that has a distant companion on a tuesday yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I mean, what a time to be alive that we are at this point where where someone discovering a planet is, you know, but yeah, but like, like, show me what you got. Like, that's not yeah. super amazing. Yeah, why do I care? Yeah, exactly. And yet it really is. It is still every single one of these is a world orbiting another star with potentially atmospheres and and geology and rock systems and cores and magnetospheres and who knows what's going on on that planet each one would absorb if we could get close would absorb the scientific research of of the entire planet earth to right. learn about it yeah like the planets in our own solar system even our very closest neighbors we're still learning about and still discovering yeah um so you uh now we've talked a bit about like you know you worked with the Kepler mission, you've worked you're working with TESS, mm -hmm. so let's talk a bit about you know we talked about Kepler, sad we've seen the last picture from Kepler. Talk about what's happening yeah. with with TESS. Okay, so TESS is NASA's newest planet hunter. It launched about eleven months ago now. Wow, that went by. Um, so interestingly, where Kepler was a very narrow, deep survey, looked at a small patch of sky for a long time, TESS is a very broad, shallow survey. It's looking at the whole sky, but only for a short period of time, only for about one month on each patch of sky. Uh, so it's about eight months into its actual operations now. It's already found eight planets, which you know might not sound like much yet, but they've just really started to roll out. Um, the prediction is that TESS will find 16,000 new planets. Remember, we were just saying we only know of about 4,000 so far. So TESS is going to quintuple the known sample of planets. And the exciting thing about TESS is that because it's looking at all the nearby stars, 
the planets that we find around them are the ones where we're going to be able to ask these questions like you're asking do they have atmospheres do they have geology uh so that's really exciting almost all the kepler planets were too far away to really do anything with except statistics these are the ones that we're going to study with the next generation of really big telescopes. And you guys put out a study. I'm not sure if your name was on it. I don't even remember. Uh, a couple of months back, sort of estimating the total number of planets that you're thinking that TESS is going to turn up. And I recall it being in the 10, in the 13,000 plus range which again, you know, the vast majority boring the hot Jupiters, uh, but that there could Actually, be... Actually, the vast majority will be boring super-Earths. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, uh, but, but that there would be dozens, hopefully, of Earth analogs. Yeah, that's the hope. Earth-sized things, probably not Earth... Um, because, as I said, Tess only looks for one month at a time, and the period of our Earth is 365 days the chances of catching an Earth are quite small around a star like our sun. Now, take Earth and put it next to an M dwarf, a small, cool red star that's only, you know, three or 4,000 degrees, and suddenly, even in one month, you can start to see habitable zone planets. Uh, so we may find habitable zone planets around M dwarfs, which are exciting in their own way and also upsetting in their own way. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, I mean, is in does TESS have in it to find that Earth 2.0, to find that earth-sized world orbiting a sun-like star in the habitable zone not on its own uh the there are some patches of overlap that tess actually looks at a lot more um so those patches go out to 351 days so you might be able to see one transit of something like an earth um, but then you would need to use something else to follow it up and look for more transits or look for some wobble of the star due to the mass of that planet one thing that tess will do that i find quite exciting is it's going to go back to the kepler field um, and there were a few long period planets in the Kepler field that just kind of didn't quite make the signal to noise we needed to confirm them as a planet. So TESS is going to go back. So we kind of get one more shot. Uh, and TESS is actually much smaller telescope than Kepler. Kepler's a one meter and TESS is four 10 centimeter cameras. So TESS can't go as faint as Kepler. Um, but some of them it will actually look at again and be able to see transits. So I'm really excited by that. It gives us a second go at the Kepler field. Right. And so that's the challenge, right? Is that like if you were uh, aliens looking at the sun and things happen to be lined up and you could watch the earth pass in front of the sun, you would have to wait 365 days for that to happen again. And then you'd have to wait another 365 days for that to happen a third time so that you could feel like you were pretty certain that that's what you had seen. And is right. that is that really the challenge that that you're going to have to wait this 600, 700 days of right. continuous and observations to see the multiple observations to go, OK, fine, we've we've seen it. Yeah. And that's why Kepler looked at that one field for four years, because Kepler was specifically designed to look for planets like the Earth. So yeah, so TESS is not, TESS was never designed to do that, to find Earth 2.0. TESS was designed to find the nearby planets and it's gonna do that amazingly. And maybe as a bonus, we might get like a few extra planets out of Kepler or we might get some longer period planets in these continuous viewing zones. But yeah, TESS isn't, TESS isn't gonna find a lot of actual Earth analogs, unfortunately. So then is there like a combined approach? I mean, you're mentioning Kepler maybe turned up the world. Tess can make a follow-up observation and catch another one of the transits. But I know that even just regular people now with fairly uh, run-of-the-mill telescopes and a pretty precise photometer can actually can confirm exoplanets if they want. Is right. there a way that that you can have, for example, Kepler and Tess turning up these candidates and then maybe other people showing up years down the road and trying to help build up the the knowledge right so so the so the dip of an earth going around a sun is 85 parts per million uh so less than 0.01 percent so even from the ground with a modest telescope that's very difficult that's right. usually out of reach you kind of have to go to space for that uh in terms of space follow-up there is some planned um so the, in particular europe has two missions that are coming out one is called chaos or cheops depending on how you pronounce it uh, which is launching later this year. And it's a telescope that's specifically designed to do things like this, follow up transits of objects that are found with TESS. Um, in particular, TESS is going to find a lot of things where we only see one transit or maybe two transits. So Chaos is going to go and see if it can find that second or third transit. Then after that, in the middle of the next decade, there's a mission called Plato or Plato. I'm sorry, the European missions I always pronounce wrong. 
and it's kind of like a big Kepler. Uh, it's got 26 cameras. It's going to do huge patches of the sky, but unlike Tess, it's going to do long stares and it's going to go back to the Kepler field for a whole year, um, which is great. Uh, so we're hoping that Plato will actually be able to confirm a bunch of these test candidates as well. Uh, Kepler candidates as well. Uh, so I've got a bunch of, of interesting questions here that I wanted to throw past you. Uh, Tori Gadwa okay. is asking, what is the longest orbit of an exoplanet that we've discovered? Oh, that's a really good question. So some of the um, microlensing planets are quite... So microlensing is a specific way of finding planets where a planet is going around a star and that star goes in front of a background star and actually the mass of the star and the planet bend the light of the background star around. So from our point of view, we just see this background star suddenly get brighter and then suddenly get fainter again as this lens, like holding a, a magnifying glass in front of it. Um, those are actually quite separated, the planet and the star. So those can be orbits of thousands of years. But you don't actually see the orbit as part of the microlensing. All you're really seeing is the separation right. of the sky. And then you know from the mass of the star, oh, it must, it's going to take thousands of years to go around. Okay, so... But let's talk about regular transits or radial velocity methods. So, I mean, the problem with the microlensing is you never get to come back and take another look. Yeah. So it's a one-time thing. That's amazing. And it, maybe that could be the one-off chance that we discover the Earth 2.0. But but what is the sort of, do you know what the so longest? So for radial velocity, there are some planets that have periods of decades. Mm -hmm. So for things like transits and radial velocity, because you have to see at least one orbit to really know what you're doing. Um, it's limited by how long we've been doing this. So some radial velocity surveys have been going for 20 years. Um, so we do have some planets that have like a decade, decade and a half long orbit. Wow. That's, that's... So Jupiter in our solar system is 12 years. So yeah. we have found Jupiter analogs in other solar systems with radial velocity. That's crazy. So so really, it's just going to be more eyes on the sky watching more worlds for longer periods of time. I, I had always thought that it was going to be just a matter of when the right technology showed up. I mean, Kepler was going to be the machine to do it. And then, of course, it, it didn't. had no one <laughs> put enough reaction wheels uh, on board. Yeah. But... Um, but that now we're looking at some of these other, you know, th so which one do you think it will be? Is it going to be Plato? Which one is going to be the one to find the Earth 2.0? Do you think that's the machine? The real Earth analog? I think that's probably Plato. Yeah. Because uh, Chaos is going to be following up test candidates. And as I said, Tess is going to have, Tess is going to struggle to find Earth analogs. So really Plato, which is kind of exciting. We have it. We have a plan. Yep. Uh, Kayla Thompson asks, and this is actually, this is hilarious. Um, so do you think that population three stars could have planets and and Ooh. and then you can go right Fraser into knows why i'm excited about i know this. i know so so take <laughs> it away uh fraser was asking before the start of the show what's particularly caught my fancy lately and i was explaining uh one of the things that's recently crystallized for me is this idea that very metal poor stars so these are stars that don't have a lot of heavy elements in them they're primarily hydrogen and helium also known as population three stars uh, if they're very, very metal poor, then there actually shouldn't be enough heavy material in a protoplanetary disk to form planets, to form cores the size of Earth that could then accrete gas and turn into a gas giant. Uh, part of the reason this came up is because I spoke to uh, my husband, Philip Hopkins, who's a theorist at Caltech, and a postdoc working with him, Eve Lee, and they, re they really stated that planet formation theories say that if your metallicity is less than minus one, and the way they measure it, minus one means... Uh, 10 times less heavy elements than our sun. If your metallicity is less than minus one, you should not be able to form planets at all. And as an observer, my ears pricked up straight away because I was like, wait, that's a testable prediction that you just made. You just told me I can't find planets around stars more metal poor than minus Challenge one. Challenge accepted. Exactly. So I actually just went and put in, I, I put in a big proposal to the NASA test mission to look at, I think I said 48,000 of their most metal poor stars uh, to see if I could find planets around them. So we will actually get that data either way because Tess is looking at the whole sky all the time anyway. But the, the request would be for me to get funding to actually analyze it. So the data will be there. This is the good thing about NASA missions. The data will get archived and we can ask these questions later down the road. But right now I am very excited about the idea of finding planets around population three stars. Uh, well, I mean, the population three stars, aren't they the stars left over sort of the primordial elements from the Big Bang, the hydrogen and helium without any metals whatsoever? But we see, so I don't think we have any direct evidence of those stars. We have the the next generation ones, like we have stars like our sun, but then we have the next, the generation that came before that are incredibly 
metal poor and it's that it's that middle generation that you're that you're yeah. hoping so to, to analyze. Yeah. I don't think there are enough true population three stars to do a statistical study. Uh, so I'm doing the next best thing, which is just being like, where does it cut off? Where does the actual metallicity right. come in? And then you could provide that definitive answer and say, here's where you can get planets and here's where you can't have planets. Right. Or I can really annoy my husband <laughs> and find a planet around a star more metapore than minus one. Obviously, this is all about marital compromise. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't, I didn't realize that this actually had come from the marriage was the source yeah. of this. So We, so we talk shop all the time. That's fiendish. It's terrible. Yeah. Uh, Don't Jim asks, uh, can you tell the axis of exoplanets like what seasons would be like? Oh, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so there are two things we can measure about exoplanets that would be that would tell us about how their temperature would change with time. Uh, one is if the planet's orbit isn't circular. So there are lots of planets that we found where instead of a circular orbit, it's actually an ellipse. So it's an elongated circle. Uh, and those planets would obviously have hotter times and colder times. But in terms of their axial tilt, uh, like with the way Earth is tilted by like 23 degrees, we do have a way of measuring this. Um, this it's basically the spin orbit alignment between the planet and the star. Uh, and what we can do, the way to do this is if the planet is going in front of the star, you basically measure the star. And as the planet's going in front of it, it blocks some of the part of the star that's coming towards you. And then, you know, as it goes to the other half of the star, blocks some of the star that's going away from you. This is assuming the star is rotating in the same direction as the planet. But what we see is some instances where that's not true. Either the planet is orbiting pole on or it's orbiting in the opposite direction to its star. So we kind of be in, we're able to kind of get a, a tilt of the planet's orbit with the star tilt. Now, asking about the planet's orbit a tilt against its orbit, we don't have that yet. Uh, so there are other things that define the temperature differences, but we don't have the tilt compared to its orbit. We have its orbit's tilt to its star and we have the distance from the star, but we don't have its tilt relative to its orbit. Right. And I, and I understand fairly recently, again, someone found planets that go perpendicular to the plane of the planet, which is madness. Yeah. So Kelt 9 is a recent example yeah. of something where that happened. Uh, this is the star. This is the planet that's hotter than most stars because it's incredibly close to a, an A star, which is one of the hotter kinds of stars. Um, and yes, it was found to have this polon orbit. And that already tells you something really interesting about planet formation and migration. Like what happened? You know, did it form perpendicular and then interact with another planet or another star and get shifted? Did it get hit? Like actual collision? Huh. So, so what would it take to be able to actually um, detect the axial tilt of a planet compared to its orbit? That's a good question. You would have to find something on the planet's surface that was asymmetric with the tilt so like a for storm instance, or something exactly i was going to say the wind speed around the terminator so as the planets are coming across the star different parts of their terminators are being are in front uh, the, the region that's basically between night and day the yeah. terminator um different parts of that are being illuminated by the star as it comes across so if it was tilted and there was some bulk motion difference you could measure that maybe Radio... it'd be very difficult measurement to make the the Doppler speed of the edges yeah so of the we planet. can measure wind speed in some of these planets atmospheres mm -hmm. but so far I I think I've only seen it be symmetric basically so determine I've heard that determining the axial tilt of a extrasolar planet is completely impossible and no one will ever find an example of uh, such an observation haha <laughs> <laughs> that's what that's what I've heard Tele telescope proposal <laughs> yeah exactly um maybe Scott with and Flower... one of the ELTs not not with the current technology but maybe the next generation of technology we could do that well let's talk about the next generation then so A.B. Scott and Flower asks do you have any hopes for the James Webb Space Telescope oh I have so many hopes so and so proposals Tess... yes and proposals um TESS has been called the finder scope for JWST because TESS is supposed to find all these really nearby planets those are the ones where we want to study their atmospheres and use James Webb to look for things like molecular signatures of water and methane and carbon dioxide uh, and look for atmospheric um, structure, see if we can see inversions or clouds or hazes, although the hazes actually that's in the optical, not in the infrared, scratch that part. Um, so yeah, James Webb will be able to tell us a lot about the nearby exoplanet atmospheres and what they look like. Uh, James Webb itself, again, not sensitive to Earth analogs. I think I saw a calculation that it would take every orbit of James Webb to to get one detection of one Earth's atmosphere, um, but it will do lots of super Earths. These are the things that are like twice the size of Earth. 
Now, uh, is so that because fine. of the wavelength that James Webb is designed to look at, or is it still just coming down to the resolution of the telescope? It's, it's, it's the number of photons it can gather, really. It's just, it's a very small signal you're looking for, like the size of Earth, the size of a star. Um, it's just, it's like parts per million. Cause you're not even looking when you're doing what you're doing with James Webb, you're not just looking for the transit. You're looking for the tr change in the transit depth as a function of wavelength. So it's not even the 85 part per million signal you're looking for. It's the fact that at one wavelength, it's 81 parts per million and another wavelength it's 88 parts per million. So it's a much smaller measurement again than you're trying to make. Um, so it's, it's really just the number of photons you can get. So even a six and a half meter telescope like James Webb, is just not big enough for Earth. Earth is really hard to find. Right. <laughs> um, and to, to image directly, but like, for example, you mentioned the, the ELT, right? The extremely large telescope. Mm -hmm. Will that be able to do it? I, or I same thing, super Earths, hot Jupiters. Definitely super Earths. Now I'm trying to recall to mind yeah. what I just saw last week. Um, I don't think super, I don't think ELTs can get to Earth, true Earth analogs. I think that it needs something like Louvois, Louvois. or Havoc, yeah. um, which I don't know if you've talked about with your listeners before, mm -hmm. but these are two big studies that we're doing for the next decade after W first of, of missions that NASA might fly. Yeah. And those, those are even bigger telescopes in space with special coronagraphs on them. Yeah, we had uh, Brad Peterson on here uh, a few sure. weeks, a few months back, and we just went Louvoir, Louvoir, Louvoir. It was, uh, it was right. super fun. Um, yeah. I really feel like I got the inside scoop on Louvoir at this point. The the, <laughs> the the viewers are very familiar with Louvoir, which is great. Well, just just last Tuesday, so six days ago, was when the white paper deadline was due. Basically, for the next decade, what the astronomy community does is they solicit all of these opinions from the astronomers. What should we be looking at? In in the next decade and that deadline was last tuesday and i think i saw like 68 of the 600 white papers mentioned louvoir some of the papers mentioned louvoir so no matter what please yeah the the one quote that i have from from bradley is uh it should tell us with 90 percent certainty whether or not there's any life in the milky way by being able to observe a large enough area around the earth to be able to search for biosignatures in the atmospheres of, of other planets to see if there's any you know assuming a biosignature can actually be figured out that yeah. you would actually yeah, details details, details these, again i just I, I i understand now how to motivate you i've heard that figuring out a definitive biosignature is literally impossible no one can oh, do it oh that's too far out of my field i'm, <laughs> I'm not we'll, an astrobiologist we'll let the astrobiologist figure that one out Exactly. Uh, Neil Yu asks, how many planetary systems are significantly older than ours? Oh, cool question. So the oldest one we found is close to the age of our galaxy. It's 11 billion years old. Um, and that one we actually think might be extragalactic in the sense that uh, the Milky Way that we see today uh, has munched a lot of dwarf galaxies over its lifetime. It's, a, like a, it's now like a big collection of dwarf galaxies. And you can actually pick apart the stars and see which ones came from which dwarf galaxy. They form these like streams in, that have similar abundances and velocities and that kind of stuff in the galaxy. Um, so this particular very old exoplanet we found that's like 11 billion years old seems to be part of this stream, meaning it was, it was, like, it was another galaxy, a dwarf galaxy. So like the Magellanic clouds are dwarf galaxies that now accompany the Milky Way. It was, an, it was actually an extragalactic planet that the Milky Way ate which is kind of cool. Yeah. And that's kind of moving into into that conversation about metal poor star systems that as right. as you look back in time and see earlier and earlier star systems they're going to have less of the heavier metals. Of course. Yeah. That one even though it's 11 billion years old, it's got a metallicity of minus a half. So it's, you know, less metal poor than there are fewer heavy elements in our sun but still not at this threshold that we're really interested in of minus 1. Um Let's see. Uh... <laughs> Larry Beckham is asking if we scrap the SLS, would that pay for Louvoir? I think so. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, what... All I know is Louvoir is greater than $5 billion. Right. But then James Webb is greater than $8 billion, and yeah. SLS is similar. So question is you know will are people willing to to scrap it which would right uh, which and would you know scary. there's a lot of there's a lot of philosophy about 
do you put all your eggs in one basket uh, and, you know, basically all of NASA's funding for the next 20 years into building one big telescope? I mean, it would be an amazing telescope and it would answer questions that we wouldn't be able to answer any other way. But think of all the other science in the meantime that wouldn't get done. Like, you know, you get a lot out of very small, very focused missions like TESS yeah, or Kepler. Tess. Yeah. I mean, I think Tess is exactly right, right? What, $300 million? $200 million. $200 million, including Bargain. the launch. Yeah. Right. And uh, and it's going to find whatever, you know, 13,000 plus planets, yeah. mostly boring. You could work out the Earths. per dollar planet. <laughs> per, per, per dollar planet. Yeah. 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 Everyone gets a planet. It's cheap. Right. At the moment, those planets are like $20 million, but they'll get cheaper as we find more. Right. Right. It's a, it's a, it's a, you make up for it in volume. Yeah. Exactly. Um, all right. Larry Beckham asked, has TESS covered the sky yet? How many times? So what is the, sort of the state of its observation so far. Right, so so the prime mission of TESS, so it's the mission, the two years that it was funded for, it's gonna spend the first year looking at the Southern hemisphere of the sky, and then the second year looking at the Northern hemisphere of the sky. It's currently observing, I believe, sector eight of 13 sectors in the Southern hemisphere. So it's just over halfway through the first year. So it's eight months into its 12 months, and then it's gonna flip over and do the Northern hemisphere. The cool thing about TESS is because of its orbit, it's in this very interesting orbit, which is in a resonant orbit with the moon. For every one time the moon goes around, TESS goes around twice. So the moon is actually doing the job of keeping TESS in its orbit. We don't use any fuel to stay in our orbit. Unlike when you go out to L2, for instance, you have to station keeping yeah. fuel. So TESS can actually stay in this orbit for something like 20 or 30 years. So just this week, they, um, or last Friday, they put in the TESS extended mission proposal. They really went back to NASA and were like, this looks good so far. Please give us more money. We'd like to keep doing science. So the extended mission proposal kind of looks like they're going to go and do the, there's a strip in the middle that they're missing. By doing the Southern Hemisphere and then doing the Northern Hemisphere, there's this band in the middle, the ecliptic, which is actually where K2, the sequel to the Kepler mission observed. Um, so they're going to go and do the ecliptic and then they're going to go back to the North and then back to the South. So some of these parts of the sky that I said only had one month coverage will get more coverage if TESS gets extended. And I mean, is there any reason why it can't be, you say 30 years for just the orbit alone, not having to use any fuel, it's solar powered. Um, it's got nice new reaction wheels. Um, is there any reason why it should see extension after extension? Uh, no, I mean, it, NASA often doesn't like to stop. When it has an asset in space that's working, NASA will typically keep funding that asset. Um, so we're very hopeful that it'll keep going. Um, from other missions, the failures will be things like electronic subsystems or CCDs. So for instance, Kepler had lost three of its 21 CCDs by the end of the four, of the, by the end of the eight years, including K2. So TESS has got four cameras that have four CCDs each. So Kep TESS has 16 CCDs. Um, at the moment, they're all fine and they look like they'll be fine. But that was the sort of failure that kind of accumulated on Kepler was the CCD failure one after the other and just taking out field, field of view. But, you know, Te Kepler would have kept going even if one CCD out of 21 was still working. Of course, Urgh. of course. Yeah, that it was it was about fuel. Yes, not... Tess, uh, Kepler just ran out of fuel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, uh, we're reaching the end of our 30 minutes with you, uh, Jesse. Where can people go if they want to sort of, you know, keep track of what you're working on? Uh, where should they go? They should go to the NASA Exoplanet Archive to keep track of how many planets we found. We are coming up on 4,000, and we're actually having a social media competition where you tell us what you think the 4,000th planet will look like to go into an entry for some of the Exoplanet Exploration Program Travel Bureau posters, if you've seen those. Yep, They're really yep. awesome. Uh, we have a full set to give away, um, so go look up that. Um, other than that, this week I'm curating the Real Scientist Twitter account, which is kind of cool, uh, so come find me there. And uh, your Twitter feed, Aussie Astronomer. And my Twitter feed is Aussie Astronomer, without the first E, A-U-S-S-I Astronomer. Perfect. <laughs> All right, well, uh, Jesse, thank you so much for giving us the update and answering everybody's questions. Really appreciate it. I, I really you. look forward to... Uh, all of these uh, these new planets. What a Absolutely. time to be alive. Go Tess. All right. Thanks, Fraser. Take care. Bye. All right. So we've got another half hour. So why don't we uh, we'll stick around. I will uh, shift to more general questions if anyone wants. Um, and we'll go from there. 
Uh, Colby Morgan is asking, uh, is the Big Bang origin still in our observable universe? So sort of. Uh, the the Big Bang, the evidence that we have for the Big Bang is the the uh, cosmic microwave background radiation. This is the, they call it the afterglow of the Big Bang. This was the moment when the entire universe had cooled down to the point that light could actually escape. And so it's about, like I said, about 240,000 years after the Big Bang, and we see it everywhere in all directions. And that was the that. So we can't see the actual Big Bang, but we can see after the Big Bang. Uh, people are noticing my new icon. So just to give you some some history on that. Um, I did the script for one of the oh, and I apologize in advance the Kurzgesagt uh, videos, um, the uh, in a nutshell video, I did the I wrote a script for the black holes episode. And so they did a slide in that episode where they're like, thanks to Fraser for for helping us with this episode. And and then I and I wanted to use that picture because like they drew a picture of me um, and then uh, but I never got around to it. And so I finally I talked I ran to Philip, the creator of the channel, and I was like, can I use that picture? He's like, yeah, no problem. So I I used it for my icon. Who knows how long I'll, he, he's got more hair. And a better beard than me uh, in the in the icon, but well, who, who knows how long I'll stick around uh, using that one. So uh, I'm gonna do a comment so people can see this one. There you go. All right. So hey, with some more questions. Uh, so Bob Woodward asked, "Can we use gravitational waves to detect exoplanets?" Um, I am going to say no. Um, uh, gravitational waves. I mean, the thing is, is that everything is emitting gravitational waves. These, these are these ripples in space time that are being uh, sent out by any time mass moves. And you are generating gravitational waves as you move around. But the trick is, is that the, the, the amount that these gravitational waves are is almost zero, right? And so the only gravitational waves that can actually be detected right now are colliding black holes, the most massive objects, the most dense objects in the universe, and now um, uh, colliding neutron stars. So we are a long, long way. In theory, the exoplanets are giving off gravitational waves as they go around their star and the gravitational waves are crossing the distance from there to here and they are they are moving across your body and they are causing you to grow and shrink a tiny little bit but uh, I can't imagine that we will ever get to the point with our gravitational wave observatories that we could actually detect that we can't even detect smaller stellar mass black holes colliding into each other or black holes into neutron stars or and weirdly we can't detect the supermassive black holes because they they collide too slowly but over time as we get more and more powerful um gravitational wave observatories we should be able to uh detect more and more uh let's see let me pull some other ones here Uh, so don't Jim asked, uh, have you been able to use gravitational lensing to find exoplanets? And I think Jesse mentioned that briefly. Um, yeah, so one of the, there's like three main reasons, three main ways that people detect exoplanets, right? The first one is the radio velocity method. And this is where you detect the motion of a star as it's getting yanked back and forth by the gravity of its of its planet. The other method is the transit method where you watch the planet pass directly in front of the star. And the third method is by detecting the um, the gravitational lensing. So you've got two stars lined up. And as one star passes in front of the other star, you get the gravity of the foreground star acting like a lens to the background star. And there are these slight distortions that happen as the stars move in front of each other. And from that, you can determine if there are planets. The down, so, so that method, and as Jesse mentioned, you can detect planets that are, that are totally different. They're tiny. You can detect, in theory, even moons around other planets. So you can detect planets that you could never detect with, the, with any other method. But the problem is you only get one shot. You only get this one alignment of these two stars for one second, and then they're gone. 
And so for a, a couple of hours, you can learn a bunch of information about the, the planets that are orbiting the star as the two stars are lining up. And then it's over and you're done. So um, that's unfortunately all uh, sort of that's the downside of that technique and actually like amateur astronomers again you know you can you can get involved if you have a small telescope you can join it's called gravitational microlensing and and you can actually help out and confirm exoplanets around stars as these microlensing events are happening um KN213, out of all the sci-fi ideas out there of faster than light travel, is the one that you think might be remotely possible in the far future. Uh, right? I mean, I, I hate to be the buzzkill, right? Um, but it really looks like there are no methods of traveling faster than the speed of light that we know of, according to the laws of physics as we understand them. So ideas have been proposed, like an Alcubierre warp drive that would allow you to warp space and time to be able to so instead of traveling through space just warp space and have you arrive at your destination or traveling through a wormhole or something like that uh we don't know of any way that any of these things could be possible warp drives maybe if we can discover negative mass um but right now unfortunately we don't have any way to do it so uh Someone is literally going to have to go, oh, I figured out something new about the universe. Here's the way for us to be able to travel faster than the speed of light. And until then, then we have to just think about ways. We have to be okay with the possibility that we're never going to be able to travel faster than the speed of light. Now, the good news about you can still travel close to the speed of light, 99.99999%. And if you do so... Um, relativity, time dilation will allow you to travel billions of light years and only experience several decades. So, you know, there's some pretty interesting ways that we can travel through the universe at at speeds that are po that are possible by the laws of physics. But I know, and I know it sucks, right? That science fiction has told us that we should be able to just hop in our spaceship, fly to another star system, explore it, beam down shoot aliens with our phasers hop in our spaceship go into our stargate and pass through the wormhole and engage the jump drive and slip into another hyperspace dimension and we just don't know of any way to do any of this stuff we can barely survive outside of the earth's atmosphere right like astronauts go to space and it's hard for them to survive for you know, a year in space. And that's all we're at right now. So uh, my hope is that we can like maybe live near the moon for a little while, or maybe someone can go to Mars. That would be cool. Steven Angus has discovered negative mass. Uh, will you get a Nobel prize? So go ahead and do it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Nobel Prize. If you can demonstrate negative mass, the physics community will be all over that. Uh, Raj Luthra asks, is there an accurate scientific calculator that has the age of the Earth, the solar system, and the universe? Um, well, the Earth and the solar system are roughly the same age, which is uh, 4.54 billion years old, and the universe is 13.8 billion years old. So there you go. There's your calendar. You know, you won't know the exact day. Um, whoa. Steve Croft 314. What was the temperature before the Big Bang? We don't know. All we know is we can do the math back to the earliest moments in the universe, just fractions of a second after the Big Bang, where certain things like the strong force uh, formed and and under incredible temperatures but that's it we don't know what came before that and we don't know what events led up to the big bang in the first place it might be that there's that there's no way to know no way to ever know that there is no evidence that remains in our current universe that gives us any idea what came before the came before the universe right now and which sucks again 
And but the hope is that we could detect some kind of echo, right? That would allow us to, uh, to sort of get a sense at what came before. But right now, we don't know of anything. Kim Barron asks, what would you like to do with the International Space Station? Wind it down, maintain it, upgrade it, replace it? Oh, that's a really good question. I would say that the International Space Station is a pretty valuable piece of orbiting science. Uh, and as long as it doesn't get too expensive or dangerous to, to maintain it, if I was running NASA or if I was, I don't know, an American Congress person, uh, I would vote to keep it going and going and going. That, that we don't know what kinds of, of scientific experiments we're going to want to do, but having the International Space Station there to be able to perform those experiments on is really useful. The question is, what do we do if it gets really expensive? And the question is, what do we do if the budget of maintaining the International Space Station gets like so expensive that it stops new things from being launched? And at that point, it's probably going to have to come down, I think. So I think that's sort of where I uh, that's sort of where I stand right now. I think there's a lot of value to still using it, especially now that you know, we're seeing saying SpaceX being able to fly the Crew Dragon, um, that there's going to be less expensive, more reliable ways for Americans to be able to send crew to the space station. So I think that's that's what I would I would for now keep it going probably into the late 2030s if it at some point becomes dangerous or too expensive to maintain and it's time to bring it down. Um, Escape MCP said, as Jesse said, NASA keeps funding assets if they're up there and working. Yeah, I mean, the, the issue is that it's not just NASA, right? It is, it is Congress. It is the, the law of the United States. I mean, like, why is NASA working on the space launch system, right? It is the law that that they must they must or they go to jail if they don't work on the space launch system that is i mean obviously you can quit your job but the point is that the space launch system must be built um and so people are always saying well nasa should just cancel like nasa's wasting money like nasa doesn't have a choice in this matter nasa is being told by the government of the united states to build this rocket and so they have to so uh yeah, so Gwim is saying chances of the Bigelow Space Station being a success. Uh, there is a Bigelow test module on the International Space Station right now. It's sort of a small inflatable module. And so far, it's been great. Um, NASA did an initial test with this module, uh, and it passed all of their tests with flying colors, and they've kept it inflated, and, and they've continued to use it. So at this point, I think we have pretty good evidence that the raw technology of building an inflatable habitat in space makes a ton of sense. The Bigelow uh, B2000, which is the biggest version that Bigelow has in the works, would launch essentially a, a space station that is bigger than the International Space Station in one launch on Space Launch System or you know, maybe you could launch it on a Falcon or on a on a Starship, right? On a SpaceX Starship. So we're getting to a point where it might be that it makes more sense to just launch an entirely new station with as much space inside, and then scrap the International Space Station. Uh, I'm I am really enthusiastic about these idea of inflatable stations. They really seem to work. So uh, I think don't take uh, your eye off Bigelow for sure. Uh, Necrotus is asking, would it be more beneficial to push ISS into the orbit around the moon we want for the gateway or use it as a basis or a construction base? So the problem is, is the International Space Station is actually really massive. Like it has a ton of mass to it. And so to boost that entire station out to lunar orbit would require a lot of, of rockets to go and, and boost it higher and higher and higher. And then the other thing is, is that the space station wasn't designed for that orbit. It doesn't have the kind of shielding that you would want on board the station. So you'd have to up armor it um, to be able to handle that that more dangerous environment when you're outside of the the Van Allen belts. And then the last part is it is getting old, right? The 
as I mentioned, the station, I mean, even when, when you sort of read between the lines of the work that the astronauts are having to do on board the station, a lot of their work is maintenance. They're cleaning, they're fixing the toilet again. They're fixing the, uh, the carbon dioxide scrubbers again. And so you could see that over time, all of the stuff that's on board the station, you know, the station was a chance for them to learn how to maintain their technology, how to live in space, and they've learned a ton of lessons. If you had a, cl a clean drawing board, and you could start to figure out what all the next generation versions of all the stuff looks like, it makes sense to to start again. And so I, I but I do think that idea of an inflatable habitat makes a ton of sense. You could rotate it. Um, maybe, you know, you could, what about an inflatable ring that you could rotate? So I think there's some really interesting ideas that people can, uh, can look into. So, uh, keep using the space station until it clearly, um, is too expensive and then move on. NASCO is asking, why are there different theories about how big the universe is beyond the observable universe? So that's a great question. Um, we don't know how big the universe is. The, you know, when you look out into space, you know, into the observable universe, you're really only seeing a fraction of the, un of the actual universe. You know, as you look out, every light year that you look out into space is a light year further back in, you know, is a, is a year further back in time. And so eventually the very limit that we can see is this time 13.8 billion years ago. And so we're seeing essentially all the light that could have gotten to us from the Big Bang over the course of 13.8 billion years. That is the limit. Now, that's not actually the size that that station is. So the, the size that the, the universe is, it's actually whatever, 46 billion light years radius because space has been expanding and so on. But that's the only it's like this tiny little sphere of the larger actual universe. How big is it? One possibility is that it is infinite, that goes on forever. Um, and so we're only seeing one little pocket of an infinite universe. The other possibility is that it's finite. But no matter what it is, we know that it is, you know, at the very minimum, hundreds, possibly thousands of light years across, right? Uh, we, we don't know, but we can't really know. Now, better and better observations can try to measure any curvature of the universe. Right now, it seems to be totally flat. But if there's like some slight curvature that was detected, then that could tell you sort of how big. It's sort of like if you were on the Earth and you could measure the curvature of the Earth, you could then make a guess at how big the actual Earth is. But right now, you know, if you're on the Earth and it measures flat, then you would think that the universe could be going on forever or it is so big that you just can't measure it. And that's where we are right now. So right now, astronomers don't know whether the universe is finite or infinite, and we might never know again. People want to know the answer, want to know the questions that we may never know the answer. Gwim asks, you get to design one probe mission budget, one billion. What would I like to see done? So can I have some more money? A billion dollars isn't a lot of money. As we mentioned, TESS is whatever, 250 million. Uh, Kepler was probably a billion-ish. Uh, Curiosity is like three billion. So, you know, if I want, if you gave me a billion dollars, I would probably send a fairly simple spacecraft to Titan. That would be my first desire. Uh, and I would have to go cheap because you only gave me a billion dollars. So uh, I'm going to put a uh, I'm going to put it on a say maybe a Falcon Heavy. I'll take a long slow path uh, to Titan. I want I want the submarine on Titan. I think, but maybe some kind of amphibious vehicle that can drive around on the surface of Titan and then can go into the ocean and look around. So that's what I want. Uh, <laughs> try to keep the budget reasonable. So and I think I could pull that off for I don't know if I could pull it off for a billion dollars though. So. If I could have like maybe three or four, then that's what I would do. But I will, uh, and I'll, you know, say, I'll, I promise I'll save some money. I'll use a, a SpaceX uh, Falcon Heavy to launch it. So it'll, it'll, you know, that'll save us $700 million. Let's see. Um, any more questions? 
Mike Tiran asks, how do I feel about NASA dropping SLS? So NASA, from what I understand, NASA hasn't actually dropped the Space Launch System yet. Jim Bridenstein, the administrator of NASA, announced last week that possibly um, they were looking at com other commercial avenues to send the first humans on a mission around the moon. And they were looking at potentially, say, a Delta Heavy or a uh, Falcon Heavy rocket are sort of the only two rockets that could probably do that work. But I think the space launch system will still be constructed at this point. Again, as I mentioned earlier, it is the law. Um, but you can see the environment that the space launch system is evolving in right now that Every day that goes by, uh, SpaceX is demonstrating that reusable rocket systems are absolutely the future, and it is going to become more and more routine to recover more and more of the rocket and to save money. Uh, for you know, looking at potentially, say, launching the Europa Clipper on a Falcon Heavy would save the mission $700 million as opposed to launching it on a space launch system. That is, uh, that's a big savings. That's a whole other mission. That's that's Fraser's uh, Titan lander uh, for free. So I'm a big fan of this idea of using some of these more commercial rockets to launch some of these things. It's at the same time, though, really until the the SpaceX Starship launches and this crazy stainless steel heat shield idea works. Uh, there just isn't going to be a launch system that has the capability of the space launch system. Like it's hard to wrap your mind around how much more powerful the SLS is going to be than any other launch platform that exists and has really ever existed. Um, the in its final block two configuration, space launch system will be more powerful than Saturn V, right? It'll be the most powerful rocket that has ever that will ever be or has ever been created until the until the starship launches and then it's you know then that's out the window it's you know then it that i think on the block two configuration the sls will launch like 170 tons into low earth orbit while the starship will do what 250 i think in an expendable mode so um you've really got to sort of give it to Elon Musk and SpaceX for developing the Falcon Heavy rocket without a customer that that nobody they hadn't sold any examples of the Falcon Heavy to anybody they just developed it uh, using their existing cash flow and investments to make that happen and now they've demonstrated pretty much the most powerful rocket that is capable right now I mean it's you know, on par with the with the Delta Heavy, perhaps more powerful. There's nothing else like it. Um, and and nobody told them to build it. Nobody, there was no taxpayer uh, incentive to build it. They just built it because they knew the future would need it. And we've seen one of them launch. Uh, and and you know, anytime I have any questions about what SpaceX is capable of, I just I just watch those twin boosters landing on repeat. I should really build that as like a some kind of loop somewhere in my house where I can just watch those boosters just land side by side. Um, I make a joke about it in the next in the next video that's coming out tomorrow um, about this. Like just anytime you want to question it, just watch those boosters land. And so I think that we definitely don't want to count out whatever SpaceX has planned for the for their next rocket with the with the Starship. But at the same time, the the Science is complicated. The materials is complicated. The ideas that they're putting into this are crazy, right? Um, that they're going to polish stainless steel, a fairly regular stainless steel, to a really high shine and to uh, use sweat, sweating fuel that comes out of the skin to be able to cool the rocket down. Uh, it's a really bizarre uh, as as Elon Musk is delightfully counterintuitive, I'm I can't wait to see this happen. Uh, Gwyn wants to know everyone's top three favorite YouTubers for astronomy physics, apart from me. Uh, let me let me tell you uh, who I like. I really like David Kipping. 
uh, Cool Worlds. I highly recommend you check out his channel. Uh, I like Scott Manley because he just like looks into the camera and just explains almost anything to a level of detail that's kind of mind-bending. And I like Anton from What to Math because he just does all these great simulations. Tim Dodd, Everyday Astronaut, is is uh, you know, so enthusiastic and is sort of watching all of this stuff. Uh, Isaac Arthur, uh, John Michael Godier. You should watch Skylius over on Twitch. She's really great. Uh, man, there's too many. And that's one of the things I've been trying to do is try to feature as many of these people as, as possible to show you other great YouTubers, especially people who don't have a lot of, of people. So if you've got, as always, you know, if you've ever see a channel, someone out there who you think that that could get some additional support, uh, please let me know so that I can uh, throw some love their way. Um, you know, reach out, get them help. Paul Sutter, yeah. Pamela Gay, my co-host on Astronomy Cast, she's like all doing, just killing it on, on Twitch. So there is a lot. Tomorrow is a great show, highly recommended. Uh, so there you go. But yeah, anytime you see a new anyone who is willing to stand up and try to be a science space communicator i totally want to give them as much support as i can so i sort of feel like that's my job um deep astronomy yeah tony arnell pbs space time yes Hayes gray art uh yeah i've reached out to Hayes gray art to try and do a collaboration haven't heard back yet so if you're watching this reply let's do a collaboration i want to like write a script to your amazing animations uh yeah pbs facetime is great matt is i mean matt it just really knows his stuff the, the the that's almost like the problem is is that he's like he just makes all these assumptions like, hey, and you all know that quantum fields work this way. And you're like, went over my head. So I like to, you know, I like to sort of, I like to feel like I'm the on-ramp to this stuff. Well, if you're more advanced topics, I always suggest that people go and check out PBS Space Time or Fermilab. That's a good one. Um... All right, just a couple more minutes left. So if anyone's got any questions, I would love to uh, to hear them. Eric1 asks, will Crew Dragon be capable of giving ISS an orbital boost-like progress? I actually don't know. Uh, I mean, Crew Dragon will be capable of like a propulsive landing if necessary. It's got this cool abort system that they're gonna be testing next. I would assume it's got the ability to to use its thrusters, but I actually don't know specifically. So I'm going to uh, I got to find out. Kim Baron, are you going to start doing streaming star parties? Yeah, we've been streaming star parties over on Twitch right now, and we've been doing that with Skylys and I every few months have been have been doing that waiting but the weather's been really bad but if you want sort of the sneak previews of that go check out my twitch channel and they will come back i know i keep promising this they will come back to to the youtube channel the problem is is that i'm such a morning person i am not a night person and so i just get so i'm a terrible night astronomer i need to i need access to like a telescope in australia or something so that i can log in in the morning my time and then show people the the night sky in australia um saint Craigus is the universe a living thing that's a great question and so you should bring that question back next week when i'm going to be interviewing frank white uh he is the author of a book called the um oh my god the cosmo hypothesis uh, and he sort of, he's the one who coined the term, the overview effect, this idea that, that astronauts uh, are sort of, as they see the universe, as they see the world, they become kind of connected and realize that, that all human beings are, are one in the same and that borders don't matter and, and so on. And so with, with this idea with the Cosmo hypothesis, just this idea that, that the universe is exploring itself. So uh, wait next week, and we will talk all about that. It's going to get pretty weird, so enjoy.
Yeah, Kim Barron says, what about solar time? Good point. All right, so uh, like I said, next week is going to be the Cosmo Hypothesis. We've got a bunch more interesting guests coming up um, next. Let's see. So next week, Frank White. The week after that is Ian O'Neill, who used to, uh, he was the head of Discovery's Space News Online. Uh, worked with Seeker. And then after that, we've got Brian Keating. That's uh, April 8th. Uh, he is the uh, author of Losing the Nobel Prize. And we talk about uh, how he lost the Nobel Prize and uh, what are the, some of the problems with the Nobel Prize. He was involved in the BICEP2 uh, group that announced primordial gravitational waves. And then it turned out that they were wrong. So I think you'll really enjoy that. Uh, and then the week after that, uh, April 15th, is uh, Chad Weber is going to join me. He's, of course, the editor for all of the shows that we do. And so we thought we would just hang out and talk about how we actually do the production of the show. Um, and you guys can ask, you can see Chad, and you can hear him talk and give him some suggestions. The music's too loud. The music's too quiet. I don't like the music. More music. Whatever music-related uh, suggestions you have for Chad, that'll be fun. All right, we've reached the end of our hour. A big thank you, as always, to uh, Dr. Jessie Christensen. She is uh, always wonderful to talk to, uh, knows more about planets than anyone I know of. Thanks to all the moderators, and thanks to everyone watching this week. And a uh, new episode dropping tomorrow, and then another question show is in the works right now and should be dropping later on this week. So we're back on the schedule now that I'm back from Costa Rica. All right, we'll see all of you uh, next week. Thanks, everybody.